you got your Bibles, please turn to the book of Luke. We're going to continue um, in our study through Luke as we have for a little, little under a year now. We're going to be in verses uh, <clears throat> 37 through 45 today. As we turn, I'm reminded of, of uh, some of my greatest memories in life. And they, they, were, they were in my high school age. And when I was in high school, I, I was a part of a church with this really large youth group. And, and we would go to summer church camp once a week per year. And it'd be like, you know, Monday through Friday. And, and you, you know, you'd get there and you'd wake up in the morning, you'd have breakfast. And you'd have, you know, kind of like a morning kind of devotional worship service. And you'd play all day. And then, you, then at nighttime you would go, and, and they'd have like that's like that was like the real worship service where they really laid on thick, and uh, and then you know it's kind of that. And then Friday, or usually I guess it would be like Thursday night. That was kind of the last full night of church camp, and you get there, and bro, they are laying it on thick. I mean that 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 preacher was there, and he was getting his money's worth that night. I mean he he was he was earning he was earning that little that little gift you know paycheck or whatever that night. Because, I mean, at that point at church camp, you're getting there, and you've never loved Jesus more. You never have. I mean, that song you've been singing, you know, the song from church camp, the one that's kind of been the, the song of the week. I mean, you're singing it. You're crying. You're going to go back, and, and you're going to break up with your girlfriend. You're going to start reading your Bible. You're going to start obeying your mom and dad. You're going to, you know, you're, you're, at that point, you're considering a call to, to, to life on the mission field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You been there? Maybe that wasn't your... That maybe that wasn't your uh, experience. But we've all, if you're a Christian, we've all had those mountaintop experiences, haven't we? We've had those moments where, where we go to a conference, a church conference, or we, you know, on a Sunday morning, or, and we're just sitting there, and in that moment, it's like, oh Lord, here am I, send me. And it doesn't take long before we come down that mountain to where things change a little bit. You know, we, we meet some temptations. We meet some people who kind of get in our way, who kind of get on our nerves. You know, I'm never going to disobey my mom again. But then, you know, mom puts a rule on us or a burden on us. And, oh, you know, I'll, Surely God understands this. I can throw a little bit of an attitude right now, can't I? It all starts to change. And what we, we find out is, as faithful as we want it to be coming down that mountain, as great as that mountain was, we, we get to the bottom of that mountain and find out very quickly that we are not a very faithful bunch. We aren't. None of us are. But my main point this morning is this, and, and don't miss this. Main point is this. In the midst of our unfaithfulness, Christ remains faithful. And that's good news. That's good news for an unfaithful people like you and me. In the midst of our unfaithfulness, Christ remains faithful. So hopefully you've turned to 
the book of Luke. Please follow along as I, <clears throat> as I read verses 37 through 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus' disciples said, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. May God bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> My point, my first point this morning, point number one is this. Mountaintop experiences quickly fade. Mountaintop experiences quickly fade. We see this in, in verse 37. On the next day, they came down from the mountain. On the next day of what? It was the day right after they spent time, Peter, James, and John, on, on the mountain with Jesus. Not just spending time with Jesus. They had been already spending time with Jesus, but in, in that moment, they were spending time with Jesus in his glory. They saw Jesus in his glory, and they saw Moses, and they saw Elijah. They saw the Shekinah glory of God coming in a cloud and, and surrounding them, and they were fearful. But in that moment of fear, God the Father, he speaks to these people Peter, James, and John, and he says, in a loud voice, he said, this is my son, my chosen one, my anointed one. Listen to him. None of us have ever experienced a moment like that. I'm confident of that. The type of mountaintop experience that Peter, James, and John experienced. You might think to yourself, you know, if that was me. Like, that would change everything for me. That would, be, that would be better than any church camp, any sermon, any conference, any, any encounter, to see Jesus in his glory. That would do it. I'd never scream at my kids again. Oh, I, I would never gossip. I would never lie. I'd never look at porn. Nothing. Just to see him in his glory, I personally would respond so obediently and so faithfully. Well then, friend, you're better than Peter, James, and John. Because we see uh, uh, that as they're coming down the mountain, <coughs> they're met with people. They're met with a great crowd. And there's a problem. Of course, whenever we come down from the mountain, any mountaintop experience, we're met with a moment of testing. 
a moment where we'll have to decide in that moment, will we be faithful or not faithful? And quite frankly, most of the time we're unfaithful. But in this moment, Peter, James, and John are unfaithful. They're met with a crowd. They're met with a moment of testing. And a man amongst this crowd, he approaches Jesus. And he says, I beg you to look at my son. My son. My only son. A son that I love. I love dearly. I care for. He's, he's my only child. Oh, teacher. He's all I've got. You're a parent. You understand such love for a child. You understand the urgency with which this teacher is approach this man is approaching this teacher, the Messiah, Jesus. He's, he's, he's heard about him. He's, he's heard about what he can do. He's heard about the miracles. Maybe he's seen the miracles. And he says, I, you're my only hope. I'm coming to you now. He speaks more about this child in 39. He says, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Teacher, I need your help. These are the symptoms. I need your help. If you're following along through the other Gospels, and I I would encourage you to, (coughs) we're going to talk a little bit about Matthew 17 and Mark 9 as well. These are parallel passages about the passage of Scripture that we're in today. Matthew gives his account of the story, Mark gives his account of the story, but we're mainly focusing on on Luke's portion of the story, obviously, as we study through the book of Luke. Luke is probably the the shortest aspect of the story. Mark is the most detailed, but we're we're going to pull from all of them this morning, and I'll try to to, to, to use these references uh, fairly clearly so that you can uh, write them in your notes and go back and look at them or even look at them as I'm speaking this morning. We, for, for, for time's sake, I can't read through all three accounts. But they all basically say the same thing. We see this. We see that this was a spiritual problem with physical ramifications, spiritual in, in the sense that he, he is possessed by a, a demon, a spirit is, is seizing him. It's controlling him. It's controlling his actions. It has these physical ramifications. In Matthew 17, 15, again in this other parallel account, it says it causes him to fall into fire and into water. This, this spirit is trying to harm him. You can imagine your son, and he has this spirit, and the spirit is causing him to fall into a pit of fire. He has, he's burned, he's, he's scarred, he's, the Spirit's trying to drown him. I mean, can you imagine such a scary sight to where you see your son and you don't know even what to do with him? You love him, but it's, it's clearly this satanic situation that's crazy. Mark 9, 21, again, the other parallel passage. We find out this information that the demon has been with this boy since childhood. He's struggled with this situation for a very long time. And again, 
Mark notes that the Spirit casted the boy into fire and water. Can you sense the urgency? I need not be more descriptive. This is a big problem. There's another problem. That's not the only problem here. There's a problem not just with the boy. There seems to be a problem with the disciples. He said, I begged your disciples, but they could not cast out the demon. I begged them. Now, there's a problem. If you're reading this verse, this passage out of context, maybe perhaps you wouldn't see the big deal. But as we remember just a few weeks ago, as, as we started Luke chapter 9, I, I, I preached on Luke 9, 1 through 6, the Lord called the 12 together, these apostles, and he gave them the authority to cast out demons. He gave them the authority to heal. And they went out, and you know what they did? They did that. They casted out demons. They healed the sick. They preached the kingdom. Then they go, and with Jesus, they feed the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000. They were just servants. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus takes him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He reveals his glory. And all of a sudden they come down the mountain. And all of a sudden they find themselves unable to heal. Unable to to do anything about the problem. They weren't unwilling. They tried. They were unable. What is the problem? What is the problem here? Did Jesus take away the power? Did Jesus take away the ability? Did Jesus, did something change? We, I mean, we, we read again, we're start at chapter 9. We're basically almost through with chapter 9. There's nothing that said that Jesus somehow, the, the, the deal changed. So what happened? Point number two. Our biggest problem is a lack of faith. Our biggest problem is a lack of faith. We're going to figure out here that as we consider Luke 9, 37 through 45 and these parallel passages of Matthew 17 and Mark 9, it was a faith problem. It was a faith problem. <laughs> it wasn't a Jesus problem. It wasn't an ability problem. It was a faith problem. You see, we, we, it noticed something interesting in, in verse 41. Jesus' Jesus's response to this man this, this man who's bringing this child, this sad situation. Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? This isn't quite the same sweet and compassionate Jesus that we've seen in some of these previous verses. The Jesus that, that as they were traveling for a little retreat with, with the apostles, and he sees these, these crowds flocking around the, the shoreline to meet them on the other sides where Jesus in his compassion says, I have compassion on these people because they are like a sheep. They're like sheep without a shepherd. We see a different response from Jesus here, a type of response that we haven't quite seen yet, 
but a response that we're going to continue to see throughout the rest of the book of Luke. He offers a rebuke. Can you imagine? You're bringing your son to Jesus, and Jesus offers a rebuke. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? How long is Jesus going to put up with them? At this point, Jesus' patience seems to be wearing thin. And we do serve a compassionate, long-suffering God. We do. Almost all of the praises and psalms are, are, are rooted in, in God's compassion and His loving kindness, which endures forever. But there is a point in which the ark door is shut. There is a point where God brings his justice to those that don't trust in him. And if you are not in Christ Jesus, you will receive that justice. But understand this, friends. Christ stands ready to give you compassion today if you trust in him alone for salvation. Do not miss that. But Jesus mentions this faithless and twisted generation. What is it about this situation that causes Jesus to respond this way when he hasn't responded this way yet? What is it? Well, he uses two words. He, he, he says, twisted and faithless. We get twisted. In the Greek, it means perverted. It means crooked. We get that. We, we resonate with that. We, we, we understand what, a, what, what a, a twisted, perverted, crooked individual looks like. We, we, we can think of, of, of lying. That's, that's perversion. Sexual immorality, perversion, crooked. We can think of all, all, all of these things, and we understand why God would judge such people. We get it. Because our eyes clearly understand the big sins. We clearly understand the bad stuff. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we judge the success of our lives upon like the big stuff. The bad. Well, I'm not a bad guy because I don't do like, you know, I don't rob a bank. I've been faithful to my wife. I, whatever, 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 whatever. But notice this other word. Faithless. In the Greek, it's apistos. Pistos means faith. Uh, unbelieving. Not believing. Apistos. This faithless and twisted generation. They didn't believe. They didn't have faith. And in one sentence, Jesus equates this generation as being unbelieving and twisted. Again, we understand why Jesus might have wrath upon perversion and being crooked and twisted and sinful, the big stuff. But in this same sentence, Jesus is here equating unbelief with that. And oftentimes, we downplay the importance of faith to God. We downplay it. We don't think about it. 
We often highlight great acts of evil and great acts of obedience to God. We think about them and we we highlight those things. (laughs) Yet, we often forget the role that faith or a lack thereof plays in these great acts. There's a correlation. There's a direct correlation of faith or lack thereof to obedience and disobedience. We must first ask, what is faith? What is faith? We can go to the Bible and we can, we can see in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This word assurance, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's a confidence. A confidence of things hoped for. An assurance, a belief that also results in conviction. It's a belief that acts, a belief that acts according to that belief. It's very interesting how in a church that's theologically rich like Community Bible Church, we can, we can talk a lot about the things that we believe. And in, in, in intellectual knowledge, we can say, we know that the Bible says X, Y, Z. And God says, I don't care if you know what it says. Do you believe what it says? That's the difference. It's not enough to know. Faith is not simply knowledge. Faith is not simply observation. Faith is assurance that leads to Conviction. James, James 2, 18 through 23 says it this way. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. You, you believe in God, you believe in some theological knowledge because the word of God says it, good. That's good. It's not good enough because even the demons do well. Or even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counting to him, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Friends, faith is this. Faith is believing God. That's it. Faith is believing God. We take his word as trustworthy and true. That when he says he's worthy of all glory and honor forever and ever and ever, which is what his word says, it means we believe it and we act upon it. That's the, the acting upon it is the fruit of the belief. There was no other righteous type of belief in the Bible other than believing God that leads to action. When it says by grace through faith, it's by the grace of God that he comes and gives us a heart that does understand God and does see God and does see him as infinitely valuable. It gives us hearts that actually can believe God and and, and, and as the Lord does that by grace, we trust in Christ. We do wholeheartedly. That's only a work of God. But it's a type of faith 
that actually does transform our lives and gives us a desire to actually follow Christ and believe him. Believe what he says. Believe what he says is true about himself. That is faith. It's true belief, true assurance, true conviction. And at the heart of all sin, hear this, at the heart of all sin is a lack of faith. At the heart of all sin is a lack of believing not in God, but a lack of believing God. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, Satan says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. An encouragement, don't believe God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't believe what God says. I know God says he wants good for you. I know God says this fruit is not good for you. I know God says when you eat the fruit, you will die. But verse 6, here's what the woman chooses to believe in Adam. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. At the heart of the very first sin we see in God's word is this. We don't believe God. At the heart of every sin is a lack of believing God. In the New Testament, in Romans 1, it says this, Romans 1, 18 through 21, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, unri- and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. They don't believe God. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his Eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. To them problem. It's not a God problem. For although they knew God, they knew God existed. It was clear. They did not honor him as God. They didn't believe that God was who he said he was, that he was not worthy of their worship, that he was not king of kings and lord of lords, that he's not the ancient of days, that he is not the judge. They didn't believe it. It's not enough to believe in a God. It's not enough to believe in God. Do you believe God? Do you believe that he is who he says he is and nothing less? 
they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. At the heart of all sin is a lack of faith, a lack of believing in God. But at the heart of all obedience, friends, is true faith. A heart that actually believes God. Again, we, we, we could consider Abraham in Genesis 15.6 that says, And he believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham simply believed God. He believed that God would bless him. He believed that, that, that God would, would give him this offspring. That God would give him a land. He simply believed God. And he left his home. Because he believed God, he left. He didn't just say, yeah, God, I got you. As we sang about this morning, you know, he offered Isaac. Why? Because he believed God. He left his home. Why? Because he believed God. Hebrews 11, 5 through 6, by faith, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Because he was obedient. He, Christ was pleased with this man. And without faith, listen to this, <clears throat> without faith, <clears throat> it is impossible. It is impossible to please God. There's no obedience without faith. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You believe God. What is faith, church? Simply believing God. But we go through the whole Old Testament, which is what these individuals had at this point, and, 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 and what we find is this, that God is not fond of unbelieving generations. You could go look at Deuteronomy 32. It's Moses' song, and, and, and we see in this point that God is chastising a people who would not believe in him. And he calls them a crooked and perverted generation because they're not going to believe God, but they're going to turn to idols. They're going to turn to other gods because they don't believe that God is worthy. Because they don't believe. And it's the same story on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. Now that we've defined faith, we see the severity of it. I think the next question that I, that I think of when I, when I read this passage here in Luke, because there's a lot of players involved, there's disciples involved, there's crowds involved, there's this man, there's this son, there's Jesus. All, who is the faithless generation? Is it the man? Is it the disciples? Is it, is it, is it, is it the crowds? I would say it's all of them. And I would get this again by looking at the parallel passages in Mark 9, Matthew 17, and here in Luke. At Mark 9, 22 through 23, first, perhaps we consider the crowds, the man. This, a man, this man approaches Jesus, <clears throat> and he says this. He says, if you can do anything, Jesus, 
I'm just here because if you can do, if you can do this, that would be appreciated. That would be great. Again, look at it. Mark 9, 22 through 23. You don't have to look at it now. If you want to, feel free. And Jesus says, if? If I can do something? <laughs> You're mistaken, my man. Have you not heard about what I've already done? This isn't a question of if. A faithless generation questions God's ability. Not believing that God can do what he said he can do. A good description of a faithless generation is is constantly questioning, God, can you really? We go to God's word and we we see that that, that God can change people, that God can save people. Or as Pat pointed to to this morning, that Christ said he would build his church. Oh, well, we get some persecution. We get the wrong candidate in office. We, you know, Netflix does its thing. Apple does its thing. Twitter does its thing. Christ, you aren't going to build your church. He promised he would. And as we get this anxiety, we want to get all political. We want to change our strategy. Even though Christ told us our mission is to go make disciples, we just question God's ability to do what he said he would do. They didn't truly trust in Jesus. Nor did they trust <coughs> the ones that Jesus gave the authority to do these miracles and had already proven that they could do these miracles. They actually didn't trust. They actually didn't believe. It's a question of if. The crowds were a faithless generation. But the disciples also, probably more culpable are a faithless generation. In Matthew 17, 19 through 20, as this passage comes to a close in Matthew, he says that the disciples wondered why they couldn't cast out the Spirit. They were perplexed. They didn't understand. Jesus, why couldn't we do it? We'd already done it before. We already casted out demons. We already healed the sick. We, we've, we've already seen you move in mighty ways through us. What's the difference this time? And specifically, Jesus tells them that it was because of their lack of faith. Because you did not have faith. It's defined a little bit more explicitly in Mark 9, 28 through 29. Again, they wonder why they could not cast out the Spirit. And Jesus tells them this, that they could only drive it out with prayer. They could only drive out this spirit with prayer. I think we're seeing here two things. Jesus recognizes their lack of faith. He's pointing it out to them. And that's evident by this, that they didn't seek God's power in prayer. They didn't seek it. The fruit of their lack of faith was this, They didn't pray. They didn't seek God's power. Friends, Jesus did not give these apostles these gifts and this authority to act out of the flesh for their own glory. The intent was never go and do this for your own glory and do this in your own power. That was never, ever, ever, ever the goal. 
The goal in giving this authority and giving this power was always and is always still to utilize it by faith, trusting in God. And what, is a, what does a heart, a life look like that trusts in God and relies on his power? It's a life that is prayerful. A life that's constantly going before God and, and recognizing our inadequacy, but recognizing his adequacy and his sufficiency and his faithfulness. That is what walking by faith looks like. It's not just going to slay the dragon or kill the giant in the flesh in our own little bravery. That's not, that's not, that's not faith. Faith looks like this. Spending time in prayer and acknowledging that God is big enough and adequate enough to slay the dragon, to kill the giant, to move the mountain. It's not about you. Any faith that you have in and of yourself, it is a gift of God. All of it. Any goodness in you, it is, it is all because of God. And you think, well, Brian, man, I, I, I'm resonating with you, man, because if the Lord sent me out to do this type of important work, the first thing I would do is be on my knees praying that the Lord would move. Or man, if Brian, if, 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 if I was up there in the pulpit preaching like you and you spend all week preparing this message, I'd be praying all week. But here, this Christian, you don't just need the, the power of God to preach or to heal. You need the power of God to love your wife. You need the power of God to obey anything at all. You need the power of God to, to, to desire to open up his word and read and to see Christ. For all obedience, you need the power of God. And faith looks like this, constantly praying that the Lord would change you and do what only he can do because you're not enough. You're not, and I'm not. I'm not up here saying that I, I, I'm enough. I'm not enough. I need the power of God. I can barely speak this morning. And any good that comes from this sermon is because somehow Christ has sustained it enough. It has worked in your heart. We need a deep, deep dependence on God. And those who walk by faith understand that. Because God's word tells us that. That we believe God. It's not enough to put systems in place. It's not enough to put accountability partners in place. It's not just having good conversations. Oh, dear friends, those things are great. They're only great in the sense if they point us back to just our complete dependence on God. So what we see here, we see an unfaithful generation. We see a generation that does not believe God the crowds, nor the disciples. And it doesn't matter if the disciples came down from the mountain. It doesn't matter if the crowds gathered because they heard about what Jesus had done. At this moment, they didn't believe God. And no generation before them or any generation after them did. However, in the midst of man's unfaithfulness, Christ's still shows mercy. 
He still shows mercy, doesn't he? He could have, and he probably should have, annihilated them right there and brought his judgment in its full force right there, just like he should have done in the garden, just like he should have done in the desert, just like he should have done through the prophets. We all deserve it. We all deserve nothing but his wrath. But in his love, he still shows mercy and he heals the boy. Bring me the boy, he says. Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and it convulsed him. We just see this demonic power at work. <clears throat> but Jesus, he rebukes the unclean spirit and he heals the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Christ shows mercy and all were astonished. What an incredible display of God's mercy in that moment. But yet, this passage shows us an even greater display of his mercy. As I close with point three, our only hope Our only hope is a faithful God. Our only hope is a faithful God. We see this in verses 43 through 45. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, everybody's like, that's awesome. We just saw this kid and he was convulsing on the ground. His scarred up body, his broken body, His deformed body from from laying in fire and trying to be drowned and beaten up for years and years and years. Jesus worked. And he's normal. He's good. He's healed. He's clean. There he is. That's awesome. He's high-fiving. Jesus brings his inner circle, his disciples in, and he says this, let these words sink into your ears. I've got something to say, and you need to hear it. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Matthew and Mark also point to these passages. And this again. Matthew 17, Mark 9. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. He will be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again. In the midst of their unfaithfulness, Jesus wanted them to understand that the Son of Man was about to be delivered in the hands of men. Why? Because every generation has been an unfaithful generation. And every person 
has been an unfaithful person. But yet we find a sinless, spotless, holy, good, faithful unto death, son of man that came to be crucified because of their unfaithfulness. Who came to be faithful because we could not be faithful to satisfy the wrath of God on their behalf. Oh, don't marvel at the miracle so much, friends. Marvel what I'm about to do. Marvel at the fact that I've come to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf, to take the full weight of your sin, the full weight of your punishment, and to do it in place of you because you never could. You couldn't because you're wretched, because you're crooked, because you're unbelieving. Oh, but when the spotless lamb was put on the cross, he could say, it is finished. Paid in full. And then as he was put in the grave, and on on the third day he rose again, death was defeated. Period. But Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, we know this passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was <coughs> crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. That's what God did. That's what God did. That's what Christ did for you, Christian. That's what he did. He did it for you. He took your place. Pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities. And here's your role. You want to know your role? You want to know my role? Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned. Everyone, that's you. You're here sitting here this morning. That's like you. You've turned to your own way. You don't believe God. Apart from Christ, you don't believe him. You don't worship him. You don't trust him. You don't obey him. You want nothing to do with him. Apart from Christ, apart from his sovereign hand, and apart from his grace, that's you. You trust in yourself. You're self-reliant. But in the midst of that, this beautiful truth in Isaiah 53, 6. But the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Christ took the punishment. Oh, the Son of Man came to be delivered to the hands of men. That's why he came. And it was so essential. Not that the apostles would first and foremost realize what happened on the transfiguration or, or happened down on the ground, but they would understand this if they didn't understand anything else. The Son of Man came to die and be raised from the grave to defeat sin once and for all. And the problem is, they still forget it. And we know ultimately they're going to understand it. So there was a good ending to the story. But we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. If you are a Christian, that's what that means. You're saved by grace through faith alone. And even though we are a part of his church, and even though we are saved 
Because of his faithfulness, not because of ours. And even though his Holy Spirit is inside of us, and it's changing us, and sanctifying us, and making us more like Christ, and conforming us to the image of Christ, and giving us hearts that do desire to follow Christ, because his word tells us that. Our biggest struggle today is still a lack of faith. It is. Your, your biggest problem in your marriage is a lack of faith, lack of believing God. Your biggest problem with relationships is, is that. It's, it's a lack of faith. Like Your biggest problem with adultery, whatever it is. It's not believing God. That's the church's biggest problem. See, what's the biggest problem in the church today? It's they don't believe God. That was the biggest problem in Revelation 2. Ephesus. They were faithful in some aspects. They were, they were faithful in their efforts against false teachers. And against doctrine and, and, and fighting for correct doctrine. But they were unfaithful in this. They, they didn't love God and they didn't love their neighbor. So what's Christ tell them? Repent. Believe God. In Pergamum, they were faithful. They were faithful in persecution in a wicked world. But they were unfaithful in this. They didn't believe God in this. They chose sexual immorality instead of purity and false teaching to truth. What's Jesus say? Repent. Believe God. In Thyatira, they were faithful in service, they were faithful in love, and they were faithful in works. Here's where they were unfaithful. They were tolerant of false teachers and tolerant of sexual immorality. What's he say? Repent. Believe God. In Sardis, we will find this. They were, only, they were faithful in this. There were a few members of that church that were faithful. Just a few. But the, the, but the majority of their church was this. They, they were unfaithful in this. They were committed to dead works. Works without faith. And to disobedience. What's Christ called them to? Repent. Believe in God. Laodicea really doesn't have anything good to say. They're just hypocrites. They're unfaithful. They're not characterized at all by faithfulness. You know what Jesus says? Say it with me. Repent. Believe God. The church at Philadelphia is only given a description of faithfulness. And it is this, that they kept God's word in the midst of little influence, little resources, and persecution. They were poor and they were beaten up by the world. And you know what the encouragement is? To hold fast. Keep doing it. Not earn enough money, get enough influence, build your brand. No. Hold fast. The church at Smyrna, same thing. They're given only a description of faithfulness, and it's this. They're faithful in the midst of persecution. And you know what Christ's encouragement to them is? To continue being faithful unto death. Those were those churches. And I would ask us, Community Bible Church, bring it home. What about us? What are the areas that we could that Christ would look at Community Bible Church and say, 
You believe God. You are faithful in this area. You're faithful in this area. You're faithful in this area. Because, not because of the flesh, not because of any good in you, but simply because you believe God. And one of the areas that would require repentance, those areas where perhaps we're not being faithful, we're not believing God, we're not being who he's called us to be or doing what he's called us to do, I'm going to leave that to Wednesday night. Perhaps that can be our discussion questions, or for those of you who meet on Thursday night, <laughs> those can be your discussion questions. For, for the youth, as, as you gather, ask those questions. But not just about us corporately. Husbands, what, what about your family? Or simply, what about you individually? Those things in which you're walking in faithfulness, as some of these churches in Revelation continue to walk faithfully, believing God, not in the flesh, believing God and relying on Him and being dependent on Him. And those areas of unfaithfulness, Christ isn't offering His wrath, He's simply saying, repent. Believe him. Believe God. The good news is this, church. That in the midst of our unfaithfulness, Christ remains faithful. If it all depended on you, and all depended on your work, and all depended on the things that you could do, we would be in such big trouble. Because Christ said, how much longer will I bear with you? You know what, Christ will, if, if it's just according to you and just according to your flesh, Christ will not bear with you at all. He will rec- you will receive God's wrath. But those of us who are in Christ Jesus, saved not by our works, not because of anything good in us, we are only saved because Christ was faithful unto death. May we remember that every minute of every hour of every single day as we walk by faith with our children, with our spouses, at work, at school, in relationships at the church, as we evangelize, as we preach, as we make meals, as we run sound, as we lead worship. It's all because of Christ. And to do any of that well to honor the Lord, we need his power and we need his strength. Let's not forget that, church.